Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The number of small businesses participating in defense contracting has been dropping steadily, 40% in the last decade. With their first ever national defense industrial strategy, Pentagon officials want to turn that number around. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more. This strategy has been out for a couple of weeks now, Anastasia, and what do they want to do about bringing in small business back to the industrial base? One thing that the new national defense industrial strategy recognizes and acknowledges is the need for flexible acquisition. And Danielle Miller, she's the acting deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Industrial Base Resiliency. She said one thing that they want to work towards is being more accessible to small businesses. So, for example, the Pentagon recently awarded a new other transaction agreement for the Defense Industrial Base Consortium, and Advanced Technology International will serve as the consortium manager. This OTA will basically allow them to enable a faster execution of the Defense Production Act funding. The goal is to bring in industry partners, uh, including non-traditional contractors and small businesses to work with the Pentagon on supply chain technology projects or potential research through prototype development initiatives. And um, there are currently no fees to enter the consortium. And that's basically their way of saying um, we're lowering the barriers of entry for small businesses. But at the same time, the consortium does reserve the right to introduce fees of up to $250 at a later date. And that will provide consortium members with access to membership meetings and industry events and stuff like that. But there are exceptions to that. Here's Danielle Miller, Acting Deputy Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Industrial Base Resiliency. So one of the things we want to look at is make sure that we are more approachable for small businesses. Um, because the goal is we want to make sure is that we have access to new ideas as quickly as possible so we can bring them in and drive innovation in the through the defense industrial base. So we've, we've found the OTAs are very useful for that. You come into the consortium and we can take ideas and, and bring them to fruition faster. And one more thing to highlight is the Defense Production Act Program Office has a funding opportunity announcement. And they're currently soliciting proposal for production technology projects. So you can basically write a white paper. Companies can choose their own topics, but also it would have to align with the Defense Production Act's area areas of focus. Those areas of focus include sustainment of critical production and scaling of uh, emerging technologies. Here's Danielle Miller again. If you have an idea, you can just write a white paper and submit it, and then we'll evaluate it against our criteria, and we can then you know, pick it up from there. And Pentagon acquisition officials feel they have enough authority to fund some of these ideas that are coming in through these white papers? Yes. As of right now, she said they have a lot of authority. And specifically, they want to use that authority to the maximum before they go and ask for any additional authorities from Congress. But, for example, through the Defense Production Act, historically, they've taken advantage of grants and procurements. But now they want to look at loans and loan guarantees. Here's Danielle Miller again. So we've mainly used grants and procurement commitments. During COVID response, we stood up the first loan program in 50 years. And so I run that program. And so then we're looking, taking those lessons learned to figure out how we would expand that out to a larger defense industrial base. So, and even within the FAR, sometimes there's clauses that we haven't thought to use in uh, new and interesting ways or used to address the challenges we have today. So I think we want to spend time leveraging the authorities we have and only then going and asking for additional authorities. 
And how is Miller and her cohort going about making sure that what they're doing is going to foster greater participation by small businesses? Do they know that this is how small businesses want to interact and therefore will come into the defense industrial base? She said that they actually have an entire industry engagement team. They've been doing a series of listening sessions And of course, they're planning on doing um, a lot more in the future. And they're also doing meetings one-on-one with the industry so that they can provide feedback on the path forward now that the strategy is out. Also, one thing to highlight, she said that they're meeting with international partners as they're working on that implementation plan. Now, this strategy came out a couple of weeks ago, and I've heard reactions to it from ranging, well, it's a nothing burger to people saying, well, this is a really good start to fixing a big problem because the strategy is more than about the small business space. It's about the industrial base, period. So I guess my question is, any direction on what they're going to do with all of these strategies for the DIB? Right now, they're working on an implementation plan. The implementation plan will be classified. There is no timeline on when they're going to be finished. It's as of right now, there is no idea whether the implementation plan or parts of it is going to be publicly available or there is going to be some sort of a messaging campaign around the implementation plan. But all she said was, and I quote, that they will be working through different venues to talk about specific components with the appropriate audiences. When I asked her about a public version of the implementation plan, they said that they don't want to promise anything. They will be a messaging campaign, possibly. A messaging campaign to try to get more people to build ships, airplanes, and small businesses to innovate. All right. That's the Pentagon. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, 
so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was 
really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.